He was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary and as solitary as an oyster. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. That is quite the description, isn't it? You can feel this man walk into a room, can't you? This time of year when people think of hard-heartedness, they remember Charles Dickens' Scrooge. What do you know about hard-heartedness? Do you merely see the, the selfish character of Scrooge? How open are you to seeing that when you put yourself and your particular definition of pleasure at the center of your world, you're not only rejecting God's wisdom, rebelling against his authority, but you're also questing for his position. Hard-heartedness is not something merely found in Scrooge. It's something that we all have to look out for. Yes, people like you and me. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll continue our study in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10. As you're turning there, I'm going to give a little background and context. And if you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible provided for you there in the pew. You can use that. It's there for you to use. It's on page 897 in the pew Bible. Mark wants us to repent of our sins. And believe, trust in Christ alone for salvation. He wants us to get that the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ and that everything has changed since he first appeared. Jesus has come to be everything Adam, Israel, and all of us are not. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the true and rightful heir. The promises belong to him. They are yes and amen in Christ. He is, as the Old Testament predicted, God come to us in true humanity to save many from judgment and sin by taking it on himself. So our context now moving into through Mark's gospel in chapter 10 is that of Jesus teaching about the seriousness of sin to the disciples at the end of chapter 9. And now enter those not interested in the seriousness of sin, but about their own righteousness and their own pursuits. Let's look at God's word together. Mark chapter 10. He, let's talk about Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again. And was his custom, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, what did Moses command you? Maybe your translation says, what did Moses instruct you? Verse 4, they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were again, when they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, this, is, this passage is uh, certainly an interesting passage indeed. And for many, it's controversial. I hope today will be pretty straightforward for us as we study it this morning. But you can't help but note the tensions in the text. Jesus comes teaching, the Pharisees come testing, right? They come looking for license, Jesus takes them back to worship, right? The disciples come looking for answers, Jesus doesn't mix words. Here's the central point, it's there for you in your bulletin. Hard-heartedness is deceptive. Hard-heartedness is deceptive. God's love is true and should be seen in the marriage covenant. God's love is true and should be seen in the marriage covenant. Verse 5 is key in highlighting the problem. The term hard, hardness of heart means an unyielding frame of mind, coldness, obstinacy, stubbornness towards God and his word. Unresponsive. As I've said before, I'm, I'm no doctor, but to be unresponsive is to be dead. Be dead in sins and transgressions. There's a coldness, an obstinacy, a stubbornness towards God and his word in in humanity. And sometimes God's people, if they're not careful, they begin to drift and begin being less sensitive to God's word. Jeremiah declared, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. Well, there goes the counsel to follow your heart. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Hard-heartedness is deceptive. God's love is true and should be seen in the marriage covenant. Number one, thinking on verses one through five, look there in your outline, consider the heart. Consider the heart. First subpoint there in your bulletin, our wicked hearts like to test rather than be taught. Our wicked hearts like to test rather than be taught. That's focusing on verses 1 and 2. In this section, you see Jesus teaching, edifying, and the Pharisees testing, manipulating. Note the locations mentioned here. That's there. I don't think that's there for just skipping over. Jesus being in the territory likely sparked hope in these Pharisees that Jesus would answer as John the Baptist would on, had, had answered on marriage and suffer hopefully the same fate as John the Baptist and be executed. The term test means to attempt to entrap through a process of inquiry. To test. Look at the scene. This is a public situation. Hey, Jesus, you get the feel there? Don't you love that guy? Ne- don't be that person, Right? They're playing a gotcha game with Jesus. Wrong person to play that with. 
Use your imagination here about these fellows. They are the, they are the pugnacious reporters at a press conference who spin things. They are the self-righteous churchgoer who asks questions not to be helpful in front of church folks, but to sow discord. They are the folks who come into a church thinking you must pass their test of approval as if congregations are so desperate for their opinions. This attitude of the Pharisees is in all of us, in our pride. It is what Jesus calls us to mortify, to put to death, to pluck out, to cut off. Do you have this tendency in us? Kill it. Friends, when we're not going for wisdom, for clarity and truth, but for our entrenched ways, we act like the Pharisees. When we only surround ourselves with those who conform to us and make us look righteous, we act like the Pharisees. Now note the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? You know, Jews getting married were typically joined by a legal agreement, and their divorce required a legal document to address the terms of the of their original contract. And it gave permission, obviously, if they had the papers of divorce for remarriage. And divorce was so accepted as a regular part of life. Remember, Isaiah uses it as an image to describe the broken relationship between Israel and God in Isaiah 50. Among the Jews, the real difference of opinion centered in the grounds for divorce. The debates between the conservative and more liberal rabbinical schools were in full swing in those days. The conservative school held that it referred to adultery as the only grounds for remarriage, divorce and remarriage. But then on the other hand, adultery under the old covenant would, could get you, it was a capital crime. The liberal school, however, claimed that man, a man could divorce his wife for nearly anything that displeased him, even burning a meal. Can you imagine? What they are asking is, Jesus, is it permissible to divorce, to send away a wife? What, what, what's the terms of that you know, being permissible? They, let me just note here, too, they really didn't care what he thought. You know that, right? They really uh, couldn't care less uh, uh, about what Jesus was thinking uh, about divorce. They chose this topic to determine which method of Scripture interpretation he would employ and so they could point at the others and get Jesus in trouble. Have you ever been in this place before where you were cemented in your opinions and unable to hear debate? Pick a topic that you, you don't want to be challenged. Ask the spirit friends for help and keep praying. But look at the situation again. The Pharisees are attempting to brand Jesus right here as an adversary of the law of Moses. And if not Moses... Then some can say, well, he's challenging the Herodians, as John the Baptist would have. Either way, they're trying to setting up, set up a lose-lose situation here for Jesus. Remember John the Baptist, he rebuked the recent divorce, divorces of Herod and Tippus and Herodias so they could marriage each other, and he condemned that. He challenged them for that, and of course she got her way and got his head on a platter. So as you look at what they're doing here, let's make Jesus either look like an adversary to the law of Moses, gotcha, or again against the Herodians, gotcha. You say, Pastor Garrett, this, this is so greasy feeling. Yeah, it is. It's very greasy feeling. Friends, that's what we look like when we scheme and manipulate. You know that? We look greasy, sneaky, manipulative. It's tempting to be caught up in the conventions of society. It's tempting to get caught up in getting our way. 
What we need to get caught up is in the glory of God. Second subpoint: Our wicked hearts look for permission rather than worship. Our wicked hearts look for permission rather than worship. The Pharisees come at the, the law asking, what does it allow me to do? To put it more bluntly, what can I get away with? How close to sin can I get? That's a, that's a different approach, right? That's, a, that's interesting. That's actually a very natural reproach. That's the natural response of our hearts. That's how we tend, that's our drift, is what can I get away with? It's certainly appealing to look for more license. Remember, though, in a previous debate, Jesus declared that the Pharisees themselves were experts at using the law to avoid doing what God really required, to twist the scriptures to avoid the harder, and to tell you the truth, more glorious truths of scripture. So he reveals where their hearts were. They were far away from God. Are we more occupied, friends, with the pursuit of our freedoms like the Corinthians that ultimately neglects God's will, which is primarily concerned with love for a neighbor? You know, the Pharisees just really resemble the Corinthians here, don't they? Interested in their rights, not their responsibilities. Pursuing legal exoneration for behavior, no matter how it might affect another person. It's like the person in Corinth, just going to a temple feast to idols. Well, I can eat the food and and take a a young one with them, as if that's not going to damage their conscience to drag them into sin. Note, too, that they ask only about the husband's right to divorce. Ladies, you notice that. And pay no attention to the needs of the wife. What, is it, what it does to her, what it does to the children, whether she has any right to object to a divorce. So Jesus' question uncovers their sinful hearts behind the mask of legal correctness. What a blessing. I'm speaking sarcastically here. What a blessing we are when we're locked in our own stubbornness, right? I mean, we're a real gift in that moment. I mean, this is the, this is the husband or wife splitting hairs in a petty argument to prove who's right. This is the teenager who continues to argue back a technicality rather than pursuing the Lord and what God requires them to do. Friends, this is us when we are entrenched in pride. Now, Jesus takes him to, the, to, to school in the law of Moses with which they are seeking to trap him. And he shows them that they saw divorce as a legal issue rather than a spiritual one. So much of discipleship and shepherding is moving hearts to see past what they want to what pleases God. You understand that, right? When we're being discipled or we're discipling someone else, shepherding, that's so much about so much of the conversation, moving the heart past what we want to what God desires. So Jesus gets them to think about their reading of Moses. What was God's intended purpose for marriage? Let's back up there, Sparky. Let's rethink this. They were cherry picking Moses's words. There's an institution that calls itself a church that builds entire dogmas today. They're in Rome on obscure cherry pickings of the text, creating massive uh, blockages and, and confusing things. It all says that Jesus is not enough. He's not sufficient. Friends, that's not, it didn't start with them. It's right here. It's right here in our hearts. It's right here with the Pharisees. 
cherry-picking Moses' words. And Jesus shows these legal experts how superficial their knowledge really was. More than that, they were about their will and not God's. Third sub-point, our wicked hearts need restraint. Verse 5, our wicked hearts need restraint. Moses did not command or encourage divorce. This is that come on man moment. Like, who, who reads like this? It feels like that. This is not what Moses was encouraging. He did not command or encourage divorce. He merely permitted it. The reason God gave them the laws over divorce in the first place was a response to the suffering caused, verse 5, by human hard-heartedness. Human hard-heartedness, obstinacy towards God. In other words, Israel in Moses' day was not able to fulfill the Creator's intentions and needed law after law after law to reflect the second best reality. By giving laws on divorce to Israel, God was not putting His approval on divorce or even encouraging it. Rather, He was seeking to restrain it and make it more difficult for men to dismiss their wives. So when you read Deuteronomy 24, it was meant to limit a problem, not license what in essence goes against God's original tensions in marriage. So hard-heartedness, the inability to have one's heart in tune with God, to God's best intention and plan is what the problem was. So Israel, as you know, looked like the world, looked just like the world and not like a renewed humanity. They began to not, no longer look like a special people, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. They look just like the world. Eventually, these, there's many sin problems led to God saying to them, my name is profaned among the nations because of you. And friends, that's true of us as a church. When we act and live just like the world, you can look at it in our marriage relationships and how we handle all a number of affairs in our lives. God's name is profaned among the nations when the church does not live by his word. Today, do people see the newness in us? Do, do our lives show the new life of the spirit of God working out in our lives? Are we as just as consumer-minded and worldly and wicked as the world, friends? Well, back to what Jesus reveals. Without a bill of divorcement, a woman could easily become a social outcast and be treated like a harlot. And no man would want to marry her, and she would be left defenseless and destitute. So there had to be laws and regulations concerning how divorce went. The law protected the wife by restraining the husband from impulsively divorcing her and abusing her like an unwanted piece of furniture instead of treating her like a human being. Ladies, let me just stop here and just say, do you know that men can act like this? You know that, right? You know that men can do this. Women, too, don't, don't be fooled by that either. Our dating practices in this culture where fornication is quite normal, it's glorified divorce practice today. That's why when people go through these long dating relationships and there's a breakup, it's like they're walking through a divorce. Billy Graham said, if young people could only realize that a happy marriage depends not only on the present, but upon the past, they would be more reluctant to enter into loose, intimate relations with anyone and everyone, end quote. That's wise counsel. We need not only marry differently in the church, but we need to date differently than the world does too. We need to do marriage life different. We need to do dating life different. 
the legislation in Deuteronomy on divorce certificates protected wives from brutal abandonment. It freed a wife from the accusation of adultery when she, out of necessity, remarried. And it prevented the first husband from destroying her new marriage by trying to reclaim her. It deterred anything that might look like wife swapping. I mean, have you ever read the laws in Deuteronomy? They're, they're written, uh, they're put in just different, they're not all, they're written uniquely as part of the storyline of Israel's history. That's why they're not always, um, all the laws, every single law is not contained. It's the story of the laws. So that's why you'll read through Deuteronomy. He goes from one topic to the next. And, and what you see is like, he, they had to have laws to tell them not to do that? I'm not joking. Go home and read them. You'll see the laws that were given. Like, it would make common sense to you and me. But the more you look at it, you realize, yeah, that's just like human beings. They had to be taught, you can't do that to your wife. You can't do that with your neighbor. You can't do that with a family member. Those laws are all there. It deterred, it, it, they had, this, this particular law, just, it, it deterred wife swapping and a number of other injustices. The law was therefore intended to keep the social upheaval associated with divorce to a minimum. So Jesus' line of clear line of reasoning becomes clear. If the Mosaic legislation on this issue had its roots in men's hardness of heart, willful defiance against God, then it cannot reflect God's design, his will. And Moses may have given laws to regulate divorce, but divorce is not God's will for marriage. It's like Jesus resets them all, reminding them that God never condoned discarding your spouse. And Jesus shows them that they have hardness of heart. And the follower of Christ is above all, above all is to be by grace a person whose heart is not self-seeking or self-defensive. It's to be a changed heart, but renewed by the word and, and by the grace of the spirit. Believers, friends, have a sense of ongoing radical change that affects their attitude. Particularly in this context, marriage and divorce. I'll say this again. This is normal Christianity. I'm not setting a bar here that's like, that's for, that's for the elders only. No, this is for everybody. Believers, Christians, have a sense of ongoing radical change by the sanctifying grace of the Spirit that affects our attitudes, especially right here in context toward marriage and divorce. Christians know that while there are many painful circumstances in marriage, the grace of God can manifest itself in the softening of one or both parties toward God and thus toward each other. Your marriage struggling couples this morning, turn your heart toward the Lord, both of you. Verse 5, that phrase, verse 5, for you says it all, for you. Why is our world full of pain and divorce and adultery? Because we're sinners. We reject God, his design, his word. We rather not yield to him our words, our thoughts, and deeds. No one is righteous according to God's holy perfection. The word is written for us. We have all told God to buzz off. The one who has all authority and can cast body and soul into hell everlasting. We have told him to take a hike in our lives. Friends, this is the very reason we need a Savior. We need more than a crutch. 
We need more than a martyr. We need a substitute. And that's why God himself put on full and true humanity. God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was born of the Virgin Mary without sin and never sinned and went to the cross to offer himself in substitution for sinners, taking on their sin and shame and guilt and God's wrath at Calvary's cross, dying in their place, shedding his blood for them. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for any sinner who would repent, take God's side against their sin and trust in Jesus alone for salvation and to prove that God accepted payment for our sins. He raised Jesus from the dead. Today is the day if you don't know God. Come to the one who's the faithful covenant-keeping God. Come to Christ. We need a Savior. We need newness of life. We need change of heart. All that to say, according to point one, consider the heart. The heart needs Jesus. Number two, point number two, remember God's design and plan. Remember God's design and plan. Verses six through nine. Verses six through nine. Jesus' argument then seems to be as follows. God, look at this section. Let's look at verses six through nine. Follow the argument. God in creation made two distinct but complementary human genders. Man and woman. God then also brought the two complementary genders together in marriage. No third party is allowed into this relationship. Anyone who seeks to divide those who share such a marriage and one flesh union attacks not only the marriage and the two united in it. Look at the text. But God who brought them together as well. The creator and the creation order both undergird marriage. First sub point. God gave the gift of gender. God gave the gift of gender. Gender is a gift, beloved. Jesus articulates the Jewish and later Christian understanding of gender, male and female, right there in the book of Genesis. He created two distinct sexes that complement one another. And Jesus, against many misogynistic ideas of that time and even of our own day, asserts the responsibility of the husband to be faithful to his wife, who is his equal in relation to God's command. Modern views of gender being fluid or as an oppressive social construct uh, cannot be reconciled, though, friends, with Jesus' teachings. It's natural to be propelled. Isn't it natural? Come on, let's, let's just have that honest, honest time together as a church this morning. Isn't it natural to be propelled by sexual desire? forgetting that there is one who owns every aspect of our sexuality. God made man and woman, Adam and Eve. He created us for his glory and the pursuit of any sexual relationship outside the marriage between man and woman is against our creator and it has a price tag to it. So if you're struggling this morning, and this, friends, this is the place, <laughs> this, is, this is something that a lot struggle with. If you're struggling with your identity being wrapped up, for example, in your sexual desires, your cravings, or your feelings, I would argue this morning from God's word that that's an oppressive social construct. As soon as those things fall apart or or don't work out, your entire foundation is gone and your identity has been tied to something that's fleeting and passing. The world wants you to be chained to that. Jesus wants you to know that God made you and knows what's best for you. And we forget, friends, that sex is deeply spiritual and it always reveals our hearts, expressing 
Well, what we truly worship. Sex is religious. We either are self-consciously submitting to God or we're setting ourselves up as God. And sex always connects to the God who created our bodies, who gave us eyes to see and hearts that desire, who tells us how we are to steward this aspect of our personhood. And his counsel is good and wise. Friends, gender is a gift that need not be rejected, but celebrated. Because you and I are creatures and not the creator. It's not our prerogative to relate uh, to our lives and the things in our lives as if we are the owners and designers. That's a lie of the world. As that we ourselves are gods. That we ourselves are the owner and designer. And I want to so desperately ask along, just in a gracious question, how is that going to live as if you are the designer and creator? Has it brought more joy to bring mutilation to the body, to bring more disease and lust and greed upon the body? Has it helped families? Is it beautiful to, to observe that? Friends, it's within the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman that we find not restriction, but the sphere of enjoyment designed by our Creator. Second subpoint: God established the family. Verses 7 and 8, God established the family. You can see that Jesus appeals again to Genesis. And one of the, one of the thing, reasons I love the Christian Standard Bible, among many, is that it always puts in bold the Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. So whenever you're in the CSB, you can see that it bolds the Old Testament text it's quoting. Really helpful. That was not in my sermon manuscript at all. It's just me saying this is really neat. All right, now, verses 7 and 8, God established the family. You can see he, he appeals to Genesis in which God ordained the institution of marriage and set its parameters. And he shows us the spirit. This is what's key. Jesus shows the spirit of the, of the law over its letter. The goal of pursuing God over ourselves. So man leaves, look at the text, he leaves his home to begin a new one. He's no longer a mere individual. He is now joined to another to create a new union. Verse 8. The Pharisees, like many today, want to, wanted to unite sexually, but have that ability to remain separate. You know what I mean? Uh, they, they like the, the enjoyment, the, the pleasures, but they did not like the covenant. And friends, that's so destructive to use human beings like this. The world says that sex is casual. God says it's not because he designed it to be sacred and uniting. And the implication from Genesis is that the one flesh union, look, pay attention here, becomes more con con uh, uh, constitutive of a man and a woman's being than their own individual uniqueness. So let me, let me, let me expound this a little bit. When you become married, you do everything then, I'll just say as a married man, when you become a married man, you do everything from that identity going forward. You follow me. I no longer do anything as Garrett Connor, mere individual. I am Garrett Connor, husband to Laura. My identity on earth, in a very real sense, is tied to my wife. I do not approach any area of my life separate from that union. At least I shouldn't. Single folks, this is a real adjustment. And this is why you should not enter into marriage lightly. That's why the Apostle Paul said, I wish many more were single. He knows what comes along with it. So if you are married, your life is set around your spouse because you have become one. Maybe today there are some folks listening who need to get back in line with God's design in your marriage. And you, can, you are welcome to talk with me or 
uh, one of the elders afterwards, but we, we'd love to help any marriage. So next sub point there, God established permanency. God established permanency, not fickleness. God established, established permanency, not fickleness. Verse 9. Verse 9, what God has joined together. He established marriage. He has the right to lay down the rules, right? If he's the creator and the establisher, he has the right to make the rules. A divorce may be legal according to our laws and yet not be right in the eyes of God. Jesus shows them that marriage is not just a contract between two families that can be dissolved on a whim, but instead it is a sacred covenant made before God, which is meant to last for a lifetime. So no wonder people are in agony and children scarred by divorce. We as humans reject God's wise design and rule. John Murray, that reformed giant and theologian of Westminster Theological Seminary, noted this. Marriage is grounded in this male and female constitution. As to its nature, it implies that the man and the woman are united in one flesh. As to its sanction, it is divine. As to its continuance, it is permanent. The import of all this is that marriage from its very nature and from the divine institution by which it is constituted is ideally indissoluble. And just when I thought the good Dr. Murray was done, he went a little bit further. I'm going to share that with you. Divorce is contrary to the divine institution and contrary to the nature of marriage, contrary to the divine action by which the union is affected. It is precisely here that its wickedness becomes singularly apparent. It is the sundering by man of a union God has constituted. Divorce is the breaking of a seal which has been engraved by the hand of God, end quote. I think he gets the weight of it, correct? So Jesus answers the question of verse 2. And he rules out this, this kind of this pursuit of divorce when he says, let no one separate. He's referring to the selfish man or woman, not, not the established authorities of the judicial court that is charged with caring for citizens. No, no, he's charging the man and woman. Divorce is grounded in law, but marriage, Jesus says, is grounded in creation. The Pharisees want to talk to talk about license. Jesus moves to worship by moving the discussion into the area of gift and grace, which is more demanding and also more freeing. God expected married people to practice commitment to each other and to remain true to each other. Am I clear? God expects married people to practice commitment to one another and remain true to one another. Too many people both then and now, view divorce as an easy way out and do not take seriously their vows of commitment to each other and to the Lord. It's because of sin people break the marriage covenant through abuse. They break it through abuse, abandonment, and adultery. And in God's kindness, he makes provision for people, by the way, who are treated this way. However, he desires our marriages to reflect his covenantal faithfulness to reflect his commitment to his people. Friends, the church is the bride of Christ, prepared and adorned. We are united to him through God's gracious pursuit, new covenant purchased through his redeeming blood. Our homes should reflect the faithfulness of Jesus. Husbands should lead, pursue, sacrifice, and serve like Jesus. Wives should yield, submit, and love like Jesus. 
Both are to reflect a death to self and humility that Jesus showed us. All that to say, point two, remember God's design and plan. Number three, see the seriousness of marital unfaithfulness. See the seriousness of marital unfaithfulness, verses 10 through 12. Jesus, again, doesn't mix words with the disciples. They ask for more clarity, and they get it. By the way, that's what we should always do. Tell us more, Jesus. Give us more. We should go after Jesus more. That's a good sign. The Pharisees bailed. I'm out. It's like the person listening to a sermon uh, if I say something, <laughs> they bail. They're, either they'll check out here or they check out the door. The disciples come for more after Jesus. He says, whoever divorces, sets loose their spouse, and marries another, commits adultery against the, their spouse. Think about Mark's literary approach and context here. Some of you would like me to, to go to Matthew's exception clause it's there. I, I, I totally submit and yield to it. But let's, let's just deal with what Mark has for us right here. It's Mark saying to a primarily Gentile Roman audience right here. When a man like Herod or a woman like Herodias divorces their spouse in order to marry another, this is, the, this is not the circumstance for which Moses' words about divorce are intended. On the contrary, this is the abuse of the law of Moses to commit adultery. You're using the law to sin. Publicly, Jesus used the Pharisees' trap to talk about his own agenda here and reveal the truth. Jesus does not legislate by saying no remarriage, but he recognizes what divorce and remarriage do to the residual relationship with a former partner and insists we understand that the problem cannot be avoided by legal means. The answer was, and is, shocking. A divorce may get you a legal contract, but one cannot unlive the vital ties created by life together in marriage, however painful they may be. A simple declaration of divorce on the part of a husband could not release him from his guilt before God, is what Jesus is saying. And this is true also for a woman, more likely referring to Mark's Roman audience, Gentile audience, who had the legal rights to pursue that. So let me be clear. I think it's plain that Jesus states that those who are putting away a spouse to get someone else is guilty of adultery. So while on the surface Jesus seems to be rejecting any divorce, the context suggests he's addressing the Pharisees' advocacy of no fault, any matter kind of divorce. And the innocent party who's left behind, these women who are just tossed aside, they would, they, would, they would remarry without being guilty of adultery. In Matthew's version of this incident and Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 7, we find permission for divorce under certain circumstances. And the present passage is not designed to give a detailed case law or discuss exemptions to the rule, but to state the rule itself as clearly as can be done. Remarriage after divorce for frivolous, unbiblical grounds is clearly sin. For one simple reason, the divorce ought never to have taken place, and the divorce party is still married, a married person in the sight of God. 
J.C. Ryle noted, and his commentary on Mark is a, is a gift. If you, I would highly commend that to you. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. Ryle noted a few applications here. Happy are those in the matter of marriage who observe these three rules. The first is to marry only in the Lord. Believers, he's talking about believers should marry believers. And after prayer for God's approval and blessing. The second is not to expect too much from their partners and to remember that marriage is, after all, the union of two sinners and not of two angels. Amen. The third rule is to strive first and foremost for one another's sanctification. Now that is interesting counsel, isn't it? That you should care about your spouse's walk with Jesus. Are you helpful to your spouse in that way? Gentlemen, are you leading? Ladies, are you helping that way? He says the more holy married people are, the happier they are. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, end quote. You know, one commentator put it right. Don't be hard-hearted like the Pharisees, but be hard-headed in your determination with God's help to stay together. I like that. That's pretty good. Ruth Graham said, a good marriage consists of two good forgivers. Amen. She also said, someone asked her if she ever, if she ever thought about divorce. She said, divorce? No, murder. I thought about it. Jesus' high view of marriage surely requires that divorce be a last resort to avoid a greater disaster and be found guilty of adultery and the pursuit of adultery. All that to say, see the seriousness of unfaithfulness. See the seriousness of unfaithfulness. Friends, Jesus calls us to use the faithfulness Calls us to, to live out the to live in the faithfulness he lived out for us. You know, so what are we gonna do? Are we gonna are we gonna be worshipers or consumers? Are we going to be those who are testing the waters and testing everything and testing the limits? Or are we gonna be those taught by the word and by the spirit? Are we gonna be faithful ones or are we gonna be adulterous ones? May God give us soft hearts, not hard ones. Let's pray. Amen. Oh, Lord, we, we can drift back into stubbornness and to hard heartedness. We can look for ways of license instead of starting with what would glorify you most, Lord. No wonder we make a mess of this world and of our own lives. We pray, God, you would captivate us with Christ once again. And Lord, that you would uh, create in us a love, Lord, for your word, a love for soft heartedness towards your word. Not just, Lord, in this area of relationships and marriage, but Lord, in all areas. Keep us close and clean, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.